everyone, and welcome to Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. I'm Kaylee. And I'm Jen. And this week, we are talking to Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, a gynecologist, former chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and current CEO of the organization Power to Decide. That is a lot of credentials. That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, You may remember Power to Decide, an organization focused on providing sexual health information and access from November when we participated in Thanks Birth Control Day. Yeah, and this month, we are celebrating the Make Some Love campaign along with Power to Decide. And as a part of that, we're talking to Dr. McDonald Mosley all about birth control. From her time as a gynecologist to her work in public policy and advocacy, Dr. McDonald Mosley is a wealth of information. Like, for real, wealth of information. Yeah. Incredible human. I <laughs> learned so many things, and I'm actually changing my birth control method because of this talk with her. So oh, we know you're going to learn a lot that. as well. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go, everyone. Get ready to change your birth control methods <laughs> after this episode. <laughs> for the better. <laughs> yeah. For the better. Yeah. yeah. We hope you enjoy and that you also learn a lot. Hi, Dr. Reagan. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Could you start off by sharing your pronouns and your sexuality with our listeners? Sure. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm attracted to men and women. Nice. (laughs) So starting off, we would love to hear about what your sex education experience was like when you were growing up. Yeah, what I remember, it was a long time ago, obviously, but in middle school, I felt like we had a very medicalized approach where they talked a lot about risks, especially risks of STI acquisition. And I'm sure they did a lot of other things. But what I remember most is an activity where each student was given like a little Dixie cup filled with clear (laughs) liquid. And we walked around sort of swishing and swashing the liquid between cups. And then at the end of that, you know, mixing and sharing, the teacher added a reagent to the cups and several of the students' cups turned bright purple. (laughs) Um, And this was meant to demonstrate sort of the risks of exposure and acquisition of STIs. And although it was a very bright experience, it did make an impression on me, right? That the cup could look normal and it was nice, clear liquid that looked just like water. And you walk around sharing it. And at the end of the day, you know, a few people, uh, a few people had purple liquid in their cups. I had the same exact thing at, at a, at a it was actually a Christian like church camp, but we all, we all drank the water and spit it back into our cups and then we were mixing them. And yeah, it was really it was supposed to be like, look how disgusting this is. So I, I feel for you there. Yeah. But that obviously made an impression on me because, you know, decades yeah. later, I still remember it. Exactly. <laughs> but I think the most important experience I had was actually at home. Mm-hmm. My parents had me when they were older. I was the youngest of nine children. So they obviously had a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. And they also knew that they didn't want me to have children young. And, you know, my family was from a very religious household. Both of my parents were sort of leaders in our local Baptist church. So I was really surprised when they sat me down with my boyfriend, who I was with in high school for years, to talk about sex. They talked about ways that we could pleasure ourselves and each other without penis and vagina sex, for example. Wow. They spoke about the emotional connection that comes with having sex, especially at a, at a young age. Mm-hmm. And I even remember my father talking to me about pleasure and how important it was that in any sexual experience I had, that I received pleasure and as, as much pleasure um, as my partner. Wow. So I was like, 
I'm sure Dang. I was bright red throughout the whole conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's probably one of the most embarrassing conversations I ever had. But on the other hand, I really respected my parents and, you know, could even understand how uncomfortable it must have been for them to have. But mm-hmm. they felt like it was important. And at the end of the day, it was very revolutionary. And I didn't realize at the time uncommon until going yeah. to college and realizing how many of my friends had never had conversations like this with their parents. Yeah, that's I don't think we've ever had a person say that their parent told them they should be experiencing pleasure <laughs> during sex. Yeah, my father was very adamant about that. He was like, do not let people use your body for their pleasure. You should be making sure that yes. you're adequately satisfied and having pleasure. And I was like, yeah. please stop talking. Everything you're saying <laughs> yeah. is coming out of your mouth right Shut now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, you would also think as a parent, you should care about your child experiencing pleasure like why wouldn't you want that (laughs) absolutely so it's great to see you know and hear how many of these topics now are talked about in sex ed classes pleasure consent healthy Mm -hmm. relationships all of these things like that just having a much more comprehensive inclusive approach to sex ed is so important yeah extremely so you then as, as your journey through life, you became a gynecologist. Could you tell us a little bit about what made you want to become one and about your time working as one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I was born to do this work. I have a group of college friends with whom I get together every few years. And the last time we were together, they reminded me that in our freshman year, I taught them, I did like a little lecture <laughs> about the female anatomy. And I had each of them draw like Georgia O'Keeffe inspired floral uh, (laughs) pictures of their vulvas and like white, you know, wild, beautiful colors. And I had forgotten that I did that. But I think, you know, teaching people about their bodies and and sexuality and and reproduction is is my um, is in my blood and in my constitution. But truly what solidified my commitment to becoming a gynecologist specifically was a few years later after that experience with my college friends my freshman year. I spent a semester um, doing research in Moshi, Tanzania, in northern Tanzania, about the causes of maternal mortality. And my research found that the leading cause of death was complications from unsafe abortion. And it was Mm. unfathomable to me as a young woman that so many people died needlessly due to lack of access of comprehensive reproductive health services. So Mm. I was, you know, committed from that point on a very early stage in my life to using my career and my assets to make a difference in ensuring that more people had access to quality reproductive health services and the ability to design their lives, both in the U.S. and abroad. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's that sounds like a really intense experience and obviously becoming more and more important in the states as well um, as we see you know, certain laws being passed in certain places. Yeah, I mean, I started this work abroad and, you know, that was like my orientation to the need for comprehensive reproductive health services and thought I would spend my entire years, my entire career rather, working in global health. And so it's crazy to me that now more than ever, like we're fighting for access to contraception and abortion in the United States. It's kind of nonsensical, but yet here we are. Yeah. So it sounds like your passion for gynecology along with your passion for making sure that people have equitable access to contraception and reproductive health care kind of brought you to what you do at power to decide uh can you tell us a little bit more about your journey yeah yeah thanks for that question so p- prior to working at power to decide most of my work was in the direct healthcare care sector um, mm-hmm. doing direct delivery and and sort of being a 
healthcare uh, operations and administrator. And what I realized from working in communities that have considerable barriers to access is that many people never make it there to see a provider. Mm -hmm. They never jump through all of the hoops, you know, calling, waiting, making sure you have the right insurance, like all of that. And many people just sort of from the minute that they think about, you know, I need more information about my body or I might need contraception or I might need a, a abortion services, they never quite get there. Mm-hmm. And so I jumped at the opportunity to work at Power to Decide because we operate in that critical space to decrease barriers and friction from the moment that someone decides that they need more information about their bodies to getting there. So we work to provide uh, evidence-informed information about sexual health, contraception and abortion to people and parents and champions. And we inspire people to have meaningful conversations about their bodies and sexual health. And we connect people to the care that they need through our clinic finders, our method finders, and plethora of quality information and articles on our platforms like Bedsider. And we also work in communities and with entertainment media to reduce stigma and normalize conversations about sexual and reproductive health topics, which for someone who talks about sexual and reproductive health all the time is is really stimulating. Yeah. That's such important work because especially when it comes to choices about reproduction, there's so much working against you, whether it's more more like morality coming from outside sources or it's negative messages coming from the media. Jen Jen and I actually talk about that a lot, how a lot of the things that we watched growing up would cast a really negative light on having any kind of control over your your own sexual health choices. So it's it's awesome to hear that you're working with that. And we have noticed a bit of a difference in media that's come out in the last few years, I think, as well, seeming to be a little bit more informed, <laughs> comprehensive around that stuff. Yeah, it's so nice to see shows, TV shows and movies just normalizing conversations about reproductive health. normalizing conversations around consent, access to Mm -hmm. birth control, miscarriage, all of the things that people experience throughout their continuum of reproductive and sexual health. You know, it's so much a part of our lives and it should be a part of the normal representation of that that people see on screen. And then it allows people to see like, oh, like it doesn't have to be full of drama. It doesn't have to be contentious. It doesn't have to be laden with stigma. It Mm -hmm. can just be normal and it can be healthy and actually it can be funny. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and those subtle things of seeing a character go through that experience on a TV show might be the push someone needs to make a decision like to go see a gynecologist for the first time or get on birth control for the first time. So that, that's awesome. <laughs> so speaking of birth control, I think we're going to kind of steer the conversation that way. Uh, to start out, could you maybe give us a, an overview of different types of birth control that are currently available? Yes. So there are tons of different types of birth control and lots of ways to sort of organize and categorize them. I definitely recommend folks to do their own research, but I'll give a broad overview. And I'll start out with barrier methods. So barrier methods are methods like condoms that can slip over the penis to prevent pregnancy and decrease the risk of sexually transmitted infections by keeping the sperm inside the condom and outside of the vagina. There's also an internal condom, which has the brand name of FC2, which is a pouch that you insert into the vagina and does the same thing. It keeps the sperm in the condom itself and outside of the vagina. And then there are spermicides, which come in a bunch of different forms like creams, films, foams, gels, and suppositories. And the spermicide contains chemicals that sort of stop the sperm from moving. To be effective, these barrier methods have to be used with every act of sex and placed shortly before having sex. 
And then there are hormonal methods, many of which your uh, listeners may be familiar with. The most common is the pill, which is a pill that you take every day to prevent pregnancy. There's tons of different kinds of the pills on the market and new ones coming out all the time. And so you may have to try different ones until you find one that works well for you. But they generally work by providing your body with hormones that keep the ovaries from releasing eggs. They also thicken the cervical mucus to prevent sperm from getting into the genital tract. There are other forms of birth control that are similar to the pill, but with different delivery systems, like the patch, which mm-hmm. is a thin beige piece of plastic that looks like a, you know, a larger square Band-Aid. It's less than two inches across, and it comes in one color that's beige, and you stick it on your skin, and it gives off the hormones, again, that prevents your ovaries from releasing the egg. There's also the ring, which is a small bendable ring that you can put in the vagina, and it releases hormones and acts very similar to the pill, but you don't have to take it every day. In fact, mm-hmm. there's one ring that you can use for a whole month and another ring, which is newer, that you can use for a whole year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I haven't heard cool. of that. Yeah. I can't imagine keeping something in my vagina for a whole year. That <laughs> yeah. seems against everything I've been told. But uh, you know, I- <laughs> So you don't have to keep it in there the whole time. So for oh, the okay. month-long ring, you can keep it in for three weeks. And then if you want to have a withdrawal bleed or what some people call their period, but it's not really a period. It's just the lack of taking hormones. You can take it out and then have the bleed and then put a new fresh ring in. For the huh. year-long ring, again, you can wear the ring for three weeks at a time, take it out and have a withdrawal bleed. And then after that week, put the put the same ring back in. So it doesn't have to stay oh. in the vagina for the whole year. It can come in and out and in and out. You can rinse it and put it in and out. But if you use it continuously, you might have some spotting rather than if you take it out and have that sort of more regular mm-hmm. withdrawal bleeder period every month. That's yeah, so that's pretty amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's also a shot which releases one hormone called progestin and the shot keeps you from getting pregnant by keeping your eggs from releasing ovaries. The shot has to be administered every three months, but you can teach yourself how to do it rather than having to go see your provider every three months, which is pretty I cool. I didn't know that. Yes. Yep. The little <laughs> subcutaneous injection right under the skin. People can uh-huh. do that themselves and lots of providers are now teaching patients to do that. And during the pandemic, when it's been harder and harder for people to access care, more providers have committed to that, to that self-delivery and and teaching. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's amazing. There's also emergency contraception, which is a pill that can be taken within five days of having unprotected intercourse. But the sooner, the better. There's an over-the-counter version, which is made with just progestin. And you can get that at at local pharmacies and, and online. And there's also a more effective version called Ella, but you have to see a provider and get a prescription for that. And then there are longer term methods uh, like the IUD and the implant. There are lots of different types of IUDs. They're little T-shaped plastic devices that go inside of the uterus. They have to be placed by a provider. And there are ones with hormones on them like the Mirena or the Liletta, and they work by thickening the cervical mucus to prevent sperm from getting into the egg. They also thin the lining of the uterus, which has the benefit of making one's periods lighter or non-existent. And so many people are choosing that method because of the side effect of making their period lighter, which is really nice. There's also a non-hormonal IUD called the Paragard, and it also affects the way that sperm moves, preventing it from meeting with the egg. That one doesn't have any hormones, so it doesn't make the period lighter, but some people like it because they like to have a hormone-free method, which is really Mm -hmm. great. Both are super, super effective and can be used from three to 12 years, depending on the type that you choose. And it's kind of nice because you don't have to think about, you know, your birth control method and your very busy life with a million other things to think about. You don't have to think about it every day or every week or every month, like some of the other methods. Yeah. So because it's so easy to use, these are increasing in popularity. Right. Totally. 
There's also an implant, which is a tiny sort of matchstick size rod that can be placed under the skin of the upper arm and can be used to prevent pregnancy for up to five years. And I've been really surprised at how many of my patients are uh, becoming increasingly interested in this method. It's becoming very popular. Yeah. And then lastly, there's permanent birth control or sterilization, which is a procedure that sort of blocks permanently your fallopian tubes so that you can't get pregnant. And for people with a penis and testicles, there's vasectomy to prevent the sperm from, from getting out. So it's important to mm -hmm. mention those methods because they're actually very common. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I, that was like, <laughs> I feel like that was better than the sex ed that I got in right. high school. So thank Just you. Just two minutes of, <laughs> of listening <laughs> on the birth control. Quick rundown. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you said that birth control pills are pretty common. Is is there a method that tends to be most common or most popular with people or is it just very widely? Yeah, no. So if you look sort of at the population in the US, the most common methods are actually sterilization. Um, so a lot of people oh. when they're done with childbearing, they'll they'll have a sterilization procedure, but those are permanent. And so people mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. don't do that until they're completely done. But mm -hmm. of the reversible methods, pills and condoms are the most common. Yeah. Um, and IUDs are actually becoming becoming more common. But typically, pills and condoms are the most common reversible methods. Do you think IUDs are becoming more common due to insurance coverage or just general information about them? Both. Absolutely. So insurance <laughs> coverage is a huge deal before the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it was just completely out of the range for many people. Yeah, um, you know, it's expensive. Five, $600, <laughs> sometimes even more, which, you know, when you sort of break it down for the life of the IUD, it's still a very cost effective method. But if you don't have five or $600, it's not an option for you, right? So yeah. the fact that the Affordable Care Act is covering methods without, without co-pays or out-of-pocket costs is huge for a lot of people. But for people who don't have insurance, it can still be really hard to find a provider mm -hmm. who has subsidized costs or a sliding fee schedule. And so there really is that gap in inequity still in the healthcare system between people who have insurance and people who don't, and also people who have Medicaid and people who have commercial insurance. But the Affordable Care Act has narrowed that gap, at least with people who have insurance, which is fantastic. And then the other thing is yeah. just awareness, right? Like more people are using mm -hmm. it. They're hearing their friends talk about it. There are there were pervasive attitudes, and in some places still are, that the IUD was very unsafe, right, and dangerous, mm -hmm. in part because there was an IUD on the market in the late 70s, early 80s that did have a lot of complications and side effects. That IUD was called the Dalcon Shield, and it had a very bad design where it sort mm -hmm. of put people at risk for infection. And so there's still a historical memory of that that uh, we've had to mm -hmm. overcome. But the new IUDs are very safe, very effective for most people. And so as people, you know, see others using them, they talk to their friends and they are like, yeah, who wants to think about having to use the birth control every day? And then also, again, with the side effect of having lighter periods or no period at all, that's mm -hmm. really made it a really popular method among many people. Yeah, I wish I had known it existed when I was 18 or 19 because it would have been ideal. <laughs> yeah, so that's the other thing too is like I think providers were really hoarding it or only utilizing the IUD for people who had children already. And so we've had to do a lot of work to break uh, down barriers so that providers are offering it to younger people and people who haven't had kids before because again, the research shows that it's perfectly safe for those populations. But for many years, providers were really the barrier to say, oh, like that's not appropriate for you. You should just take pills. Like, yeah. we know the lives of young people, all people, but especially young people are really busy. They have a lot of competing priorities. So, in fact, IUDs and implants have even a greater benefit for younger people than for older people. Yeah. Yeah. And don't IUDs also keep the hormones 
specifically in one area of your body, whereas like pills will have them everywhere? Or do I just have total No, no, no. You are super smart. So yes, IUDs in general, <laughs> the hormones are more localized. And the, with the hormonal IUD, it's just progestin. It's not estrogen and progestin. So for people who might have a contraindication or a family history or something where they want to avoid estrogen, the IUD is a better option. There is some dissemination of hormones, right? So it's not like it's only in the uterus. There's still some in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. There's still some impact on your other tissues, including your breasts, et cetera. But it is much less than with the, the pill or other methods where the hormones are in your bloodstream mostly. It's a good, good question. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's going to make my whole rest of my day great. That you told me a good question. <laughs> Very good. <question. laughs> so it, there's so many different options for birth control. How do you help your patients decide what birth control option is right for yeah, them? Yeah, that's a great question too. So the, you know, the first thing to do is to take a thorough medical history and family history. And then the second most important thing to do is just listen. Listen to the person's goals, mm -hmm. their wishes, what's important to them. You know, each method has different side effects, both positive and negative, as well as instructions for use. So if someone tells you like, you know, I take pills every day for other things, and I'm really good about taking a pill every day, and I want something that I can start and stop on my own, the pill might be the perfect method for them, even though, you know, mm -hmm. technically it's less effective than an IUD or an implant. Or if someone's like, I, you know, I do not want to have to think about taking a pill every day. I can hardly remember to take my vitamins every day. <laughs> and I'm comfortable with having a procedure and having a device implanted in, into me so I don't have to think about birth control for the next five years. I mean, I've literally had people say to me, like, I just need to get through college, right? Like, I just, I don't want to have to think about this. I want yeah. one less thing to think about for the next four to five years. And then after that, I might take it out and do something else. But I need this device for the next four to five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I wish you, I wish you had been my gynecologist yeah. when I was younger because I did not have any of those questions asked me when neither. I was going on birth control. I, I had a gynecologist, like you said, in college tell me that IUD was not appropriate for me because I hadn't had children. Yep. So, Yeah. And I think like for most things, right, like by using motivational interviewing techniques and tying your use of birth control to your other things, you're more likely to use it and to be able to tolerate the yeah. side effects, right? If it's not just about taking the stupid damn pill every day, but about like, I want to accomplish X, Y, or Z, you're more likely to be consistent with pill use. I mean, that's just common sense and behavior change. Mm -hmm. And so it really is important to listen to people and to tie sort yeah. of your counseling and about birth control to sort of what their life goals are mm -hmm. and to be honest about the risks and benefits. And to be honest that like, while I can talk at sort of a broad level about average people, I don't know how your body is going to react. So if you come to me in a month and say, this pill is making me crazy. I can't say that's not possible, right? Because <laughs> it could be that <laughs> that pill is making you crazy. And so let's, let's switch to something else. Yeah. Nice. That's amazing. <laughs> and then, so from a patient's perspective, you know, if you're going to get birth control for the first time, or maybe rethinking the birth control method you're on, what should the patient know? Or what should they ask you about? What should they consider when they're thinking about birth control? Yeah. I definitely recommend folks to do their research before they see their provider. Um, oftentimes your time is limited with your provider. And then oftentimes if you're like me, you forget like half the questions that you wanted to ask because the, yeah. the whole setting could be kind of intense. So do your research, write down questions that are important to you. Definitely ask about the different side effects of different methods, how they work, if they're reversible, right? Is it, is it, does it require a procedure to take it out? Is it something that you can stop on your own if, if it's not working for you? 
does the method protect against sexually transmitted infections, if that's important to you? And if not, will you also be able to use condoms with that method? And can the method help with other health conditions in addition to preventing pregnancy? A lot of people like the pills, not only because it prevents pregnancy, but for many people, it can also help with acne. Again, can, can lighten period, the amount of uh, cramping and bleeding with periods and can decrease anemia. So there are lots of sort of other health reasons that people can use birth control as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important to, to point out for sure. There are a lot of, a lot of reasons people need birth control and access. So what are some other common barriers for people for accessing birth control? I know you said that a lot of times people don't even make it to the provider. What are ways that, you know, we can make birth control more accessible? Yeah. Another great question. So we talked uh, a little bit about cost. Again, the Affordable Care Act and um, the stipulations that there are no out-of-pocket costs for preventive services like contraception is huge. But there are still certain plans that don't follow those rules and certain subsets of the population that don't have access to that. It's really important that we sort of decrease those gaps. And then also think about contraceptive access for people who don't have health insurance, right? And during the pandemic, what has happened is that many people have lost their jobs and that means they've Mm -hmm. also lost their health insurance. And so we have to make sure that we have modalities like expanded access to contraception through the Title X clinics and other ways for people to get contraception. And then in addition to cost, it's like just the logistics, right? Like how hard it is to call and make an appointment. How long do you have to wait and be on the phone? If you have children, which many people who are seeking birth control services do, can you bring your kids to the appointment? That's also been a huge issue during the pandemic where clinics have really prohibited anyone other than the patient coming in. So you have to think about childcare and then travel. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's only one Title 10 clinic where you can access birth control because you don't have health insurance in your neighborhood and you have to take three buses to get there, it's not very convenient, right? It's like a whole day Mm -hmm. affair. And then if you get there late, you might be turned away. And so just, again, in thinking about making contraceptive access more person-centered and finding delivery options closer to to people is really important. One of the things that I'm excited about in terms of expanding access to birth control is the use of telehealth. Just think about all of the things you buy online and how much easier it is, right? And so now more and more people are turning to telehealth platforms for contraception and even SDI testing and other services And that's really great. But again, we need to apply an equity lens to that to make sure that it's not only applying to like well-resourced people who would probably otherwise have gotten contraception, right? But maybe just with more barriers. Uh, We have to make sure Mm -hmm. that those modalities are also accessible to people with low incomes and people without insurance. They're really great. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes you can just go onto a platform, put your medical information in, and then, you know, within a day or so, a provider will review it, ask any additional questions, and then you can choose to have a whole year's worth of, of birth control sent to your local pharmacy or delivered directly to your house. Like, how amazing is that? Wow. Yes. <laughs> so amazing. But it saved me so much time in college, too. Exactly. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about gender <laughs> as well. One of my favorite topics. I think as, as an AFAB person, something that frustrates me a lot is that AMAB people or, or men in general don't understand how difficult and sometimes how taxing on your body birth control can be. Yeah. I know in the, the long list of birth control you mentioned, it seemed like 95% of it was mostly for women or AFAB yeah. people. Yeah. It seems like condoms, male condoms or condoms for a penis yep. and sterilization were like the two, the two main ones for Yeah. Which for are like men. the two extremes, right? Like right. the one method you have to use every single time you have sex or like you're done, but like nothing in the <laughs> yeah, middle, totally which is not, not sterilized. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Are there any other birth control methods that are in process for men or, or how can men out there be more supportive of, you know, largely women who are handling the bulk of the, the birth control responsibilities, it seems like? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the answer is right now, no, there aren't, there aren't any other methods available other than condoms and vasectomy for people who have a penis or assigned male at birth. Um, there are other methods in research, though. There's a pill, there's like a gel foam that could be injected into the vas deferens or the tube that carries mm. the sperm from the testicles out through the penis. Um, that's reversible, so it's not permanent, but it would degrade over time. So there are research methods. There are There is research going on to provide more birth control methods for people with a penis or assigned male at birth, but they're not available currently, which really sucks. Yeah. I have a... a teenager who's a, a dude and I was really hoping these methods would be available by the time he was a teenager but lo and behold a lot <laughs> not yet uh, so it's just you know condoms and vasectomy yeah but I love your question of just like how can partners be supportive of their partner's birth control journey and I think you know number one is just educating themselves about the different methods and different side effects not sort of overstating you know, side effects or, you know, emotional responses to people's hormones. I think that can be really frustrating. And, you know, for someone to be like, oh, you must be on your period today because you're emotional <laughs> <laughs> or like you need to take your pills more regularly. And then just, uh, you know, realizing all of the like barriers that we talked about, right, for people to get through to get that method and mm -hmm. trying to carry some of that weight as much as possible. If it's like helping your partner get to the clinic, watching the kids while they're there, like whatever it is that you can do to make it easier for your partner to get the birth control method that you're both benefiting from. Totally. Yeah. That last part that you're both benefiting <laughs> from. I just want to make sure everyone heard that. <laughs> Louder for the people <laughs> in the back. Yep. Yeah. Cause so much of the effort and cost goes towards the person taking it. Like I've never had a partner help pay for yeah, <laughs> birth control pills. I've heard <laughs> of people doing that, paying for, for their birth control methods and I think that's a great conversation to be had because again you're sort of both benefiting from that and so the cost and the burden mm -hmm. shouldn't be solely on one person as much as possible as much as it can be mitigated mm, yeah totally yep <laughs> i think it's also interesting it probably speaks a little more toward how sexist our, our medical system can be I, I i've continually seen reasons for male hormonal birth control not being a thing because of the intense side effects that it can have and maybe maybe testosterone based birth control would be more more intense than progesterone and estrogen based but i want to yell like there are so many side effects to oh sorry i'm shaking my mic here i'm so mad um <laughs> there are so many side effects to hormonal birth control for women and afab people as well and you know i i just wish that there would be either some more research on you know women's birth control methods and advancements there or i don't know something i feel like something can be done to, to advance hormonal birth control for men. But, you know, I digress yeah. anyway. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really important. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. The fact that, like, the reason why we have so many great birth control methods now is in part because of the sacrifice of low-income women in Puerto Rico who were subjected to the uh, research that was done on them mm -hmm. really in an unethical manner without them their knowledge that it was um, an a drug under investigation. And the dosages that were used at that time were way higher. And so they experienced mm. way more side effects and complications. And even some women died in yeah. part, probably because of their participation or, or really just because they were using these pills, right? And yeah. um, not being told that they were an investigational drug and what the side effects were. And that just, I think, speaks to the fact that we tolerate 
more complications and side effects and issues among among women and especially among women of color and women with low incomes absolutely and i think that you know it just speaks to misogyny and racism like all the isms right and, yeah. and the fact that we we need to put more emphasis on also doing the research and finding methods for for amab folks as well awesome yeah totally yeah. speaking of what are some other health concerns that people should have if they're considering going on birth control yeah. So the whole long diatribe I gave you about all of the different methods, each one has its own potential side effects and risks. And so I, I will start by just saying that in general, birth control is extremely safe and effective for most people. Um, but there are some folks for whom, you know, certain methods aren't a good option, right? So for example, if you have a history of blood clots uh, in your leg that could travel to your lungs, taking birth control methods with estrogen wouldn't be safe for you because it could increase your risk of blood clots. Or if you are above 35 and you have migraines with visual symptoms, which we call aura, taking birth control methods with estrogen, again, could increase your risk of stroke. And so it's probably better to find methods that don't have estrogen. That being said, you know, there are lots of different types of methods. And so most people, even if you have some medical problems, can find a method that works for you. It's really important to just be open and honest with your provider about your medical history, your family history, so that they can steer you away from things that might be unsafe for you. A couple of words about the pill, just because again, it's the most common reversible a method of contraception. Many people will experience some minor side effects within the first couple of weeks or a month of, of taking the birth control pills, like breast tenderness, spotting, or a little bit of irregular bleeding, sometimes a little bit of moodiness. And those things will generally go away after a few weeks. So just minor side effects, nothing to worry about. If they persist, definitely talk to your provider about it. The things to worry about are the more concerning things like chest pain, or again, if you have some pain in your leg that could indicate that you have a blood clotting formed. If you have any of those things, you want to stop the pill right away and talk to your provider. But that is really rare, extremely, mm -hmm. extraordinarily rare for someone to have major side effects from the pill. That's awesome. Definitely good to know. Again, all stuff I never learned when I went on the pill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where can people go to research birth control options for themselves? Yeah, I definitely recommend our resource on bedsider.org. It's an amazing website that has a ton of information about all of the different birth control methods. We have an actual method explorer where you can learn about the side effects and the effectiveness and how to use different methods. We also have a clinic finder where you can get information on providers that provide the full range of birth control methods in your area. Not all providers insert IUDs, for example, or, or implants. And so you, you'd want to ask and make sure that the provider that you're going to see can give you all of the options because you don't want to like jump through all the hoops to get there and then they'll, and then decide like, great, the IUD is perfect for you. And we don't do that. So you're going to have to like jump through the hoops <laughs> again somewhere else. So you want to make sure that where the provider that you go to provides the full scope of methods. Nice. Yeah. And then on top of that, where can people go to get birth control, especially if they don't have insurance or if they're still on their parents' insurance? Yeah, good, both, good, both good questions. If you're on your parents' insurance and are comfortable using that, um, you can go anywhere. There are, if it's private insurance, there are things called explanation of benefits or EOBs. And so your parents might get a little note saying, we paid for an IUD. So if that's an issue for you, then you might want to ask the provider not to send an explanation of benefits, which is allowed in some states and in some health centers, or seek a Title X provider, which is required to provide confidential contraceptive services if you don't want your parents to know or can't let your parents know that you received birth control services. 
Title X providers as sort of the safety net to provide contraceptive services to low-income populations, but also they're required to provide confidential services even to people who are not low-income. So you can seek your Title X provider in your location. Again, we have a clinic finder that that only lists folks that provide the full scope of methods on bedsider.org, so that would be a resource for you. Your local Planned Parenthood uh, may also be able to provide birth control services for folks who don't have health insurance. They often have Title X funding. Definitely call ahead and find out as much as you can before you go. Yeah. And then again, we, there are some of the telehealth providers that use health insurance, and so you can check those out and see. I think the Pill Club, NewRx, 28Health are some of the ones that may that may allow you to use your health insurance. And even if you pay a small fee for the telehealth visit, you can still use your health insurance for the birth control itself. So you might only have to pay nice. 7 or $15 or $20 for the visit with the provider. But then you can use your insurance and then again, have a whole year's worth of birth control sent to your local pharmacy or delivered to your house. That's awesome. That is awesome. Do you know, just off the top of your head, if Title X clinics exist in every state? So before some of the attacks on the Title X system, I believe there were Title X clinics in every state, but then a couple of states with the domestic gag rule dropped out of the, the program. So that may not be the case currently, but historically every state had Title X providers. But if you live in a really large state, that provider might be really far away from you, right? And so right. <laughs> um, the reality is that there are still large swaths of the population that don't have access to, to contraceptive services. In fact, 19 million people live currently in contraceptive deserts in the United States, meaning that there isn't a provider who provides the full range of methods in close proximity to them. Mm-hmm. So like access to abortion services, access to the full range of contraceptive methods often depends in the United States where someone lives and what their insurance status is, which I believe in a country as well resourced as we are is really unconscionable. Yep. <laughs> we also believe that. That is crazy. <laughs> crazy. That's yeah. Contraceptive or was that what you called it? A contraceptive yes. desert? That's such a good term. Yeah, yeah, we have a whole page on our website if you want to read more about it and see where those contraceptive deserts are. Um, in your state yeah. on powertodecide.org, you can look up contraceptive deserts. I will link that in the show description for this episode so people can check that out. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. We want to kind of end on a positive note here. So <laughs> um, not that it's not important to talk about, you know, privilege and access to birth control and the barriers to that. But I'd really like to know, you know, you've been doing this for quite some time. How have you seen birth control and contraceptive access uh, get better? What are the recent advancements? So many, which is really exciting. And there is a lot to celebrate. So I've been providing services now for almost two decades. And when I started, really, we only had access to the Paragard in terms of IUDs. Like the Mirena wow. was a thing, but it was just so hard to for someone to get that we would really only use it for people who had medical indications Mm, to do it. mm -hmm. So there are way more IUDs now on the market, different sizes, different hormone levels. That's really exciting. So people can find which one works well for them. As I stated, there's this new year long ring. And I think just, you know, just underlying all this is just more investment and research around contraception. It's been a woefully neglected field in terms of research and development of pharmaceuticals for For a long time. So it's great that people are finally investing in this important area There are newer pills with different estrogen profiles, which could be important to people who have family history of breast cancer or blood clots or things like that. And there's a new method called FEXI, which is a non-hormonal method that you can use sort of proximal to sex 
that creates a barrier to sperm, which is also really exciting. Um, so in addition to the research and development of all of these new methods, there's also new service delivery options that we talked about, right? There's telehealth, which, as you know, I'm super excited about and mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that everyone has access to that because it's super convenient. But there's also in, in many states pharmacist prescribing where you can go to the pharmacy, right? And think of how far you'd have to go to get to your local provider versus how far you'd have to go to get to a local drugstore. Um, it's a yeah, huge difference, yeah. right? There's pharmacists mm-hmm. and pharmacies everywhere. So being able to just go in close proximity to your neighborhood, to a local pharmacist who you often have a relationship already because you're filling your other medications there. They can do a little bit of counseling to tell you about all the different methods. And many of them are prescribing the pills, the patch and the ring. And some of them are even giving depo shots right on the spot, which makes sense, right? Like they're doing vaccines and other things as well, teaching people about insulin injections. So that's another way to increase access. And then something that I'm super, super excited about that's on the horizon is hopefully the birth control pills will be available over the counter. There are two companies who are sort of like working through the over the counter switch process right now. And that would open up way wow. more options, right? Again, oh, yeah. you can order online, you can get them in a vending mm-hmm. machine, you can get them at the corner store, a gas station, a dollar store and more. So that could be a huge game changer and another option to get one of the most common and most effective and safe methods. I can't even like imagine that. <laughs> like I'm gonna go get a Slurpee in my birth yeah, control. Yeah, like why amazing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll have no more contraceptive deserts in 20 years or so. That's right. Or sooner. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, come on. Let's let's be more aggressive with that number. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be realistic. Okay, in one year, next year we'll have <laughs> next no year. contraceptive yeah. deserts. We're gone. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my contraceptive utopia, right? Is like people fully understood their bodies. They could get you know really high quality person centered care, and they wouldn't have to jump through a million hoops to get the method of their choosing. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, it has been so fun talking to you, Dr. Reagan, and so informative. I've learned at least yeah. 10 new things just in this conversation. So <laughs> thank you Same. so much for being here. Can we find you anywhere on the internet or Power to Decide anywhere on the internet? Sure. Yeah. Please follow at Power to Decide at all platforms. You can follow me at, at Dr. Reagan on Twitter. I'm still a bit of a Luddite, so that's just better for me. <laughs> but uh, Power to Decide is, is on Twitter. It's on Instagram and TikTok. So you can find us there. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this and sharing all of your amazing wisdom and telling us we had good questions because we're both <laughs> Dr. Happy Reagan now. thinks we're smart. <laughs> yeah, they were great questions. And thank you for all of the work that you're doing to spread the gospel on sex ed. It's really important. Yeah. yeah. Doing our best out thank here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Please email us at hello at sexedshouldntsuck.com with any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, silly jokes. We love them. (laughs) Also, check out the episode description to find links to Power to Decide, as well as any of the resources that Dr. McDonald Mosley mentioned during the interview. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at sexedshouldntsuck. If you haven't had a chance yet, go take a look at our website, which is sexedshouldntsuck.com. You can find blog posts, episodes, and most importantly, our store where you can buy our merch. There are hot pink shirts with our super amazing sexy logo. You definitely need one. Everyone looks good in pink, so go for it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And if you want other ways to support the podcast, head on over to our Patreon. Our patrons get all kinds of cool benefits, like free stickers, shout outs, and more. Uh, you can find a link on our website, sexedshouldn'tsuck.com, or you can search Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck on patreon.com. Don't go to patreon.org. That's porn. I'm just kidding. <laughs> can you imagine patreon.org was porn? I kind of want to look. <laughs> oh. Oh, it redirected me back to patreon.com. So they must own the .org. Rich bastards. Well, if you go to sexedshouldn'tsuck.org, I can't promise you what you're going to find. We don't have a redirect up for that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Also, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It is the best way to stay up to date on the happenings of Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck and learning more about sex ed in the news and around the world. And finally, thank you to Kent Soliday for mastering our sound. Love you, Kent. You are a gem. Join us next week as we talk to Julia Naftulin, a health reporter and sex and relationship advice columnist for Insider. Hopefully she can answer all of the burning questions that we have about love. See you then. Bye-bye. My contraceptive utopia would be drones that personally deliver your birth control method of choice right to your window. Anyway, <laughs> something for the future. Can these dro- can these drones also administer the shot? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, or even just like, you know, do an IUD insertion right in your room. <laughs> exactly.